Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today we're lucky enough to have our, uh, I guess, resident podcast uh, specialist, uh, guru, toxicologist extraordinaire, uh, Dr. Jerry Snow from Banner Health out in Phoenix. Thanks for joining us, Jerry. Right, glad to be here once again. Today we're going to really, uh, hopefully, uh, talk about some some foundational tox issues. Um, you know, going back to when toxicology in itself was a new word for me, one of the first ways this is often presented in an educational format is is the toxidrome. So what's a toxidrome? Why do we care? You know, in the emergency department setting, in the EMS setting, we're often in the position of caring for undifferentiated patients, right? We don't, we don't know much about them. We have minimal history, no history, and poisoning, toxic exposures, overdoses, these are prevalent presentations for us in this group of patients, the, the what's going on here patient. And what a toxidrome is, is just a constellation of findings that occurs with specific toxicities from specific drug classes. So what are some of the things when you're teaching, you know, new learners, Jerry, about the concept of a toxidrome in general, uh, how do you how do you group the toxidrome to begin with? What are some of the exam findings, the vinyl findings? What are some things that we want to be looking for? Yeah, sure. Well, I think that you know, you know, these patients can be complicated, as you know, and when a person's exposed to one toxin or what substance, these toxidromes can actually be pretty useful, but. In reality, sometimes you get a mixed picture. I think it's good to know what the classic toxidromes are for a given class of substances. That way you'll be able to recognize that. But, you know, sometimes a patient will fit some of these criteria, but maybe not have all of them. So that shouldn't dissuade a person from considering that on their differential. But, you know, I like to start with the vital signs and, and that includes the temperature. So I, I like to know is the patient, does the patient have an elevated temperature or an abnormally low temperature? Are they tachycardic? Are they bradycardic? Um, what's their responsiveness? What's their mentation? Are they confused? Or are they on the spectrum of even being comatose? What do their pupils look like? Are they, are they pinpoint, like we often see with opioid toxidrome? Or are they completely dilated, where you can almost see like no coloring of their eye. You just see this big black orb, which we might see with severe subpanthomatic toxicity, or from an anticholinergic toxidrome. The skin, I think, is often overlooked, but also an important thing to look at, especially when you're trying to differentiate sympathomimetic from anticholinergic, being that we always classically think of a patient being sweaty um, or being wet. When anticholinergic, since sweating's impaired, these people are often dry, dry axilla, they can be flushed. Oftentimes, you'll also see just that even if you, like I said, you can literally take a gloved hand and put it in their axilla, and it's just dry as can be and the same thing with the mucous membranes you'll you'll see that these people almost have like you know a pasty sticky mouth because they just don't not making a lot of saliva you can take a listen to the patient's abdomen see if they have you know bowel sounds at all are they completely quiet like what you might see with anticholinergic toxidrome are they hyperactive or if they're present it makes it a little bit less likely to be for instance anticholinergic one of the fun things that I always want people to look for, especially once a patient makes it to the hospital, is urinary retention, um, which you will often see with anticholinergic toxidrome, as opposed to cholinergic toxidrome, where fluid is just coming from everywhere. They're drooling, they're 
lacrimating or crying. They're, they have diarrhea. They have urinary incontinence. So just fluid from everywhere. So I think just to reiterate, before we move on, you've given us a preview of, of several of the big, the big classic toxidrome groups, Jerry. The point that's clinically very relevant, and again, we're approaching this more from a learning framework standpoint uh, as, as a part of more of a, more of a basic approach. Oftentimes, in reality, these aren't going to be slam dunks, right? We, we just went through seven or eight vital sign physical exam type findings, and rarely is the patient going to present with seven or eight out of seven or eight. It's going to exactly. be it's going to be some combination. It's going to be you know four or five that point us in a certain direction, or the patient could have ingested or been exposed to multiple things, or they could have an ingestion and uh, infection or an endocrine emergency presenting at the same time. So absolutely, b- by no means should lack of a hundred percent you know checkbox on our on our uh, toxidrome list dissuade us from thinking about a tox exposure. But when we learn these, it's important to learn. I think the the large basic grouping. So let's run through a few of those. We you've mentioned some of these, and and we'll uh, we'll go in a little bit of detail. And I think the first one you mentioned with pinpoint pupils is uh, opiates or opioid toxicity. This is probably the most common one uh, that we see in the emergency setting. Unfortunately, uh, the main drugs being uh, you know hydrocodone, oxycodone, morphine, fentanyl, heroin, things that we we know and see every day. What are some of the toxidrome uh, quick hitters for us with opioid toxicity, Jerry? Yeah, it's, it's the big three that people classically think about. So it's CNS depression, respiratory depression, and meiosis. Those are the three big things that I, that I look for. So when a patient's brought into me and I see they have decreased responsiveness, maybe they're that, you know, it can range from apnea to just breathing maybe eight, 10 times or breathing eight or 10 times a minute versus say, for instance, a normal like 15, 16, 18 times a minute. And if I see pinpoint pupils with a patient that's got decreased level of consciousness and a decreased respiratory rate, opioid toxidrome definitely pops into the front of my mind. For the medics listening out there that are that are newer, um, you know, there's a, tons of uh, discussion and in the forefront of even the lay press these days is, is naloxone and the use of naloxone as an antidote for opioid opiate toxicity and I want to make it clear you know from an MCHD standpoint and really for for everyone out there working in an emergency setting the antidote for true severe opiate toxicity is oftentimes not truly naloxone right it's the bag valve mask these patients need oxygenation first and foremost now that doesn't mean that we're not going to pair naloxone uh, with that good quality BVM OPNP airway you know, supplemental oxygen. But remember, if a patient is apneic, we need to breathe for them first. Do you agree, Jerry? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. These things should be happening in parallel. You definitely don't want to delay providing oxygenation and ventilation to a patient. You know, hopefully you've got enough hands on deck there, so to speak, that somebody can be bagging the patient while somebody else is preparing the medication to be administered because um, that can obviously make a, you know, have a big impact on how that patient's doing. I mean, I definitely would not want to, um, a team to delay, um, you know, BVM for a patient that was apneic, cyanotic, hypoxic, because um, we can, we have definitely seen. I think there's been some delays in care at times because people are so focused 
on getting the antidote and administrating and not just doing the basics of, you know, the a, the A's and B's, so to speak. So that's the that's the downers, the opiates, uh, the opioid toxicity or the toxidrome. Let's move towards the uppers. And that's going to be mentioned those in our initial uh, initial round. The sympathomimetics, main drugs in in this class being uh, cocaine, methamphetamines, uh, PCP can be sympathomimetic like as well. And again, everything up in this situation. How do these patients look, Jerry? Um, you know, depending on the the degree of their toxicity, but you know, classically awake, <laughs> alert, agitation is is not uncommon. These people are tachycardic, hypertensive. Um, they can actually become, you know, have elevated temps just from their uh, psychomotor agitation as well as like constant activity. These people will, you know, get out and they don't fatigue very easily. So they can, you know, really do a lot of physical exertion, even putting themselves into rhabdomyolysis. I mean, these are the guys that will, you know, run from the cops, climb over a wall, try to fight. You know, it could be EMS, police officers, family, just anybody that's trying to get them to come to care. And these these are all common situations that a person might see. But I think one of the key takeaways is, you know, these guys got the big pupils. They've got typically they're diaphoretic or sweaty as well. And that's that's one of the only ways it's you can kind of differentiate this from anticholinergic toxidrome. So in, in this situation, there's no true antidote per se for uh, sympathomimetic poisoning. But what we want to do for these folks is is calm them down, right? They've got big big heart rates, they've got big blood pressures, they've got big mental status, they got big pupils. We want to calm them down the best that we can. And the two main ways in the EMS setting, classically benzodiazepines, and when we progress over into that excited delirium spectrum, now ketamine use is becoming more and more common along with uh, cooling uh, efforts, fluids, if, if the patients appear dry. And again, it's all going to be dependent on the amount of, of toxicity that the patient has. But supportive care for these folks is going to be key, especially as they progress over into excited delirium where mortality rates uh, go up pretty quickly and these patients can be really, really sick. So probably makes sense just to move over into the anticholinergics next, Jerry, because they're very similar to sympathomimetics, and we've talked about the big differentiator there. Main drugs in anticholinergic toxicity or overdose are going to be uh, antihistamines, Benadryl being most common, tricyclic antidepressants, which are a little less common today but still out there. You know, you've seen uh, your fair share of kids in Jimson Weed, many others, uh, the classic textbook, Description of anticholinergic toxicity, mad as a hatter, red as a beet, hot as a hare, blind as a bat from the uh, mydriasis. It sounds a lot like sympathomimetics, and like you mentioned, really the gloved hand in the axilla. I'm not st sticking my bare hand in anybody's armpit. The uh, gloved hand in the axilla can be the key here. Talk a little bit about these patients. I've seen a few of these. I know you've seen a lot more. The altered mental status presentation of an anticholinergic patient oftentimes is a little bit different than a sympathomimetic as well. Can you expound on that for us? Yeah, I mean, classically, in my experience, these, these patients are obviously complete, confused or they're delirious, but it's almost more, I would describe it as a pleasant delirium. In other words, they're typically redirectable, not as aggressive. And there's a couple, you know, stereotypical behaviors. I've often been called to come evaluate a patient that maybe a provider is unsure about. And within a few moments of walking into the room, I go, oh, this, this patient is anticholinergic. And a lot of the things you mentioned is what I'm looking for. You know, are they dry? Are their pupils big? I think a thing that doesn't get mentioned a lot in references, but a dead giveaway for me oftentimes is this really 
garbled, mumbly speech. Like patients can clearly say maybe a yes or a no, but as they talk, they just kind of get more and more garbled and it kind of trails off. And that's just like a cl another classic physical exam finding that you can see with these folks. And typically, if they've got something on their finger or their sheets are laying there, they're picking at stuff. They'll, you know, they, they'll pick at their leads, they'll pick at their pulse ox, they'll, they'll pick at the sheet. Um, they're just, they're, they're pickers. They, they do this stereotypical like picking behavior, which is also very common. I see more common than, than, than not exhibiting that behavior. Um, you know, it's when you talk about anticholinergics and the medications that you mentioned, like antihistamines, antidepressants, antispasmodics, antipsychotics, almost most of your anti-anything pharmaceuticals, whether they're over the counter or prescription, a good bulk of those medications with, that are anti-anything also have anticholinergic. They may have other effects too, but they also classically will have anticholinergic effects. And uh, I would also um, just caution people again that these people can have really significant urinary retention. And, and until that's relieved, sometimes these people are more agitated what you typically would expect, but they're, they definitely seem to be less violent, less agitated to a point where they're trying to, you know, do anything that would really harm someone else. A little bit more redirectable, like they'll set up in the bed, they'll try to crawl out, but normally if you just talk to them calmly and say, hey, just lay down, it only might be for 10 or 15 seconds, but usually you can kind of redirect them to kind of just lay, the, lay back down and try to stay calm. I've only seen a handful of, of true oscillated uh, anticholinergic overdoses and the mumbling and the picking are very specific. And when you see them once, I, I, d I don't think that you necessarily forget it. I would urge the medics listening out there to also beware of these drugs. When you listen to some of the antis that are in Jerry's anti-group, there are, is the TCAs and the antihistamines and in large doses, as we know, these can be pretty nasty cardiotoxins and we can get QRS widening from sodium channel blockade. So don't forget to check your 12 lead in any tox situation. And if you see that big wide QRS, whether it's clearly a TCA or maybe uh, one of the other atypical antipsychotics or a large, a large antihistamine overdose, uh, have, your, have your bicarb handy because these patients may need a lot of it. We also, you know, a lot of services out there, listeners out there have uh, pre-hospital ultrasound. This would be a situation to to look at the bladder. It would not would not be a difficult scan to obtain if you saw, uh, you know, gigantic fluid-filled bladder on your bedside ultrasound. It could definitely point you towards anticholinergics and away from you know sympathomimetics. And then we have an antidote for these, not often used in the pre-hospital setting, but fisostigmine is one that we can use fairly safely despite some dogma in the emergency department. But again, from a pre-hospital setting, most times we're going to be looking at supportive care, fluids, uh, benzodiazepines if the patient's agitated, and, you know, good, good ABCs. So let's move on, Jerry, to uh, the sedative hypnotics. Probably, if we had to rank, probably number two on the most commonly seen uh, pre-hospital overdoses, uh, uh, toxicities. And this is going to include your benzodiazepines, you know, Ativan, Xanax, Clonopin. I could go with the uh, generic names, but I'll, I'll continue to mix those up however many years I've been doing that. And, and alcohol. And these work in a similar fashion. GABA receptor agonists centrally, which causes sedation, muscle relaxation, respiratory depression. How do you, when you see these, these can look a lot like opiates with, with sedation, muscle relaxation, respiratory depression. 
how do you tease these out? Even though they can often be, you know, co-ingestions, but if you think it's one or the other, what are some things that you see uh, differently between the sedative hypnotic jury and the opiates? Well, typically when I suspect a sedative hypnotic is I've got a patient that's sedated, typically with normal vital signs, more normal pupils, not pinpoint pupils, but I look for pupils that are pretty normal and reactive with normal vital signs, but still responsive. And when benzodiazepines, for instance, are taken in isolation, not mixed with alcohol, not mixed with opioids, um, when they're taken as a sole exposure or ingestion, it really takes a lot to, for them to cause a patient to be comatose or to have significant respiratory depression. It definitely takes smaller doses of opioids to actually affect the respiratory drive. It takes very large doses of benzodiazepines to, to kind of cause that. So, you know, typically I just look for a sedated patient with normal vital signs with usually a pretty normal respiratory effort. And a lot of these patients, I just put on entitled CO2 and observe them closely. And, you know, benzodiazepines as a class within the set of hypnotics don't cause a lot of other toxicity that you have to worry about, like cardiac toxicity um, or other end organ damage, as long as the patient, you know, is supported well from an um, airway and breathing. So it, you only get yourself into trouble when you start kind of mixing it with those other substances that you mentioned. And I would say, me, me personally, and I think I'd speak for a lot of other listeners out there, probably am more concerned than I should be with respiratory depression and isolated benzo, benzo ingestion than I should be. Do you think that, Jerry, is just the fact that we see so much benzos and alcohol benzos and opiates together that the real root cause of that respiratory depression and that severe comatose state is the is the co-ingestion and the secondary ingestion as opposed to the benzos isolated yeah and the synergy that they have together in causing that depression i i will tell you that you know medical toxicology as a whole we're super aggressive like you know when you mentioned uh there's not really an antidote for sapathomimetics well we can't reverse them but we can benzo them <laughs> into a clinical scenario that we want and so we use large, large doses of benzodiazepines, specifically treating like acute alcohol withdrawal. We will we will be giving patients doses of benzodiazepines that are really other specialties are often hesitant to give, especially to a patient that's not intubated. But, you know, it would be nothing for me to start at 20, then go to 40 milligrams, even up to 80 milligrams of diazepam or Valium IV in a patient with either severe agitation or very significant alcohol withdrawal. And you will meet resistance from some physicians as well as even nurses. Like, are you, are you, are you sure? Are you sure you want to give that much? And I think they're very surprised just how much uh, set of hypnotics that a patient can take um, before they become respiratory depressed. And again, you're in a controlled setting where, you know, that's the yes. only thing they're getting. They're not getting the, the Soma Correct. and the Flexeril and the Norco right. and, and everything else that's in uh, grandma's pocket. So uh, Correct. let's, uh, well, talk, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say the only other medication that I would really want people to be aware of within this class too is baclofen, which it's, it's a GABA B agonist, but still a GABA agonist, but it can cause profound and prolonged coma in really significant overdoses. And I have seen that a number of times. And one other set of hypnotic that's always, I think always really impressed EMS is GHGHB, um, where these patients, you'll find them, EMS will pick them up and they'll be maybe have to intubate or at least bag the patient to the ED. And then they may come back an hour or two later, bringing in another patient and that patient is extubated walking around the ED. So 
you know, GHP can cause profound coma, like GCS of three, you know, minimal respiratory effort. And then within a couple hours, that patient is like back to baseline. And that's not something, uh, that's something that I have not, that, that I have seen not uncommonly um, in the ED. So real, real quick for the listeners, baclofen often used as an antispasmodic. So you will see it in uh, patients with uh, cerebral palsy, MS, uh, and it'll be in, in those homes. So in a patient that takes it regularly, uh, that has dose changes or has medication error, toxicity can occur then. Also, you know, anyone that has access in that home as far as an overdose intentional situation. And then GHB, I'd say the two most commonly seen scenarios is used, unfortunately, as a date rape drug, also used in, in bodybuilding settings as well. Any, any others I'm missing there, Jerry? Yeah, some people will take it, um, you know, uh, from a use standpoint um, as well, just to, to get the feeling of it, like taking other set of hypnotics. And I, just as you mentioned, have unfortunately seen this used to facilitate sexual assault. And again, those patients come in completely comatose, but I've seen people abuse it recreationally as well. And, you know, they come in intubated and I give them nothing for sedation because they're so profoundly comatose. And then an hour later, they're waking up and I extubate them. I'm like, what happened? And they'll oftentimes, if they've been abusing it, they will honestly admit to you that, yeah, I took, you know, GHB. So let's, let's move. We've, we've talked about sedative hypnotics, anticholinergics, sympathomimetics, opiates. Let's hit the last two major uh, toxidrome classes and one that's near and dear to all our uh, EMS listeners hearts out there is the cholinergic toxidrome probably the I think tested to least seen ratio it's this is there's guaranteed to be three questions on your next test no matter what you're testing for in emergency medicine or or uh, EMS out there you're going to get a, a cholinergic question I had to go to Central Africa before I ever saw cholinergic toxidrome for real. The main toxins in this class are going to be organophosphates, carbamates, and then some of the, the VX gases out there. And we learned some mnemonics for this one when we, when we hear this for the first time. Uh, sludge in the killer bees for cholinergic toxicity, salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, GI emesis being sludge, and then the killer bees, bradycardia, bronchorrhea, and bronchoconstriction, and those being the three that we really care about. Like you talked about earlier, Jerry, they got fluid coming from everywhere, but what, what killed them is the fluid in their lungs, uh, the constriction of their airways, and their, and their bradycardia. So these patients are basically drowning from their own secretions. How do we approach uh, treating these folks, Jerry? Well, I think, you know, you're exactly right to say that, you know, this is definitely the least common toxidrome that people will probably come across, but often, you know, often tested. Um, I have seen a handful of these throughout my career, and it's usually involved um, a carbamate, as you mentioned, or an organophosphate used as, as, a, as a pesticide. I have been fortunate never had to have seen any of the warfare agents such as sarin somin, um, VX, as you mentioned. Um, but these patients typically will have pretty profound GI symptoms. They'll be vomiting, they'll have diarrhea, they'll have lacrimation, seizures, or something we hadn't mentioned at this point, but you can often definitely times see seizures. You won't always see the bradycardia because as you can imagine, when you begin to drown and you can't breathe, some of these patients will actually have normal heart rates or possibly even be tachycardic. So this is one of those classic examples where don't let 
you know, if a person's like vomiting, diarrhea, sweat is pouring off of them, and you have a history of an exposure like that, like adenophosphate, for instance, don't that say, well, oh, it can't be because their heart rate's normal. You know, that's a great example of when not to let something dissuade you when it's got, you know, four out of seven, you know, that are classic for it, but maybe it doesn't have that one. Um, I know we had a case recently where the doc specifically, when he had called um, about getting some advice about taking care of this patient, and he was given the history, he's just like, I have never seen someone sweat like this, saturating the bed, just massive amounts of diaphoresis, like she, like somebody had poured water over the patient. And, and from a and from a test stem standpoint, most of the time you're going to give you a clue, right? You're going to be a farmer in a shed, in a barn, pesticide, crop dusting, those sort of things. So, you, you know, if you ever see it, situational awareness is going to be really important. And from a test standpoint, you're going to get some farmer exposure, insecticide, pesticide type type yeah. clue. This is another example where the the pupils can also come very helpful in the exam. You'll probably recall in the 90s when there was a large um, sarin exposure in the uh, subway in Japan, thousands upon thousands of people exposed. Some people actually did die. There were people that were definitely symptomatic, but there was also a big psychosomatic um, exposure too, because people just felt weak and dizzy and some people got nauseated, I think, from the stress of their exposure. But one of the big things they used to decide whether somebody was actually symptomatic from that exposure was did they have meiosis or not? Because the majority of these patients, if they're truly symptomatic from an exposure, they're going to have small pupils with this as well. So if so, if you've got a mass casualty incident, you're at a happen to be at a rock concert or sure. a, a race, and there's concern for terrorist type activity, and the patient's pupils react, they can pretty safely be uh, screened forward. Is that is that the main point there? Yeah, if if that patient's awake and alert, I mean, maybe they have some nausea, vomiting, but no other symptoms, and they have normal pupils and otherwise normal vitals. That's somebody that I would, you know, not, you know, triage for immediate transport or treatment as opposed to the patients that's, you know, altered, pinpoint, you know, diaphoretic, um, wheezing. That would be the patient that would more likely need to be rendered care earlier. And that care is going to consist of two things. We got atropine in our toolbox in the pre-hospital setting for sure. And these patients are going to need lots and lots of atropine. So they've got a cholinergic toxidrome. We're going to need to give them as much anticholinergic as we can, and our anticholinergic that we all carry with us is atropine. I know the the uh, severe cholinergic toxicities that I've taken care of, we gave upwards of you know, 20, 30 of atropine. Uh, so large, yeah. large doses. Dose to respiratory secretions and bronchoconstriction, you know, SATs, you know, dose to respiratory resolution, basically. Right. Absolutely. And then, yeah. and then once these people get to the ER, we've got pralidoxime. How's pralidoxime work, Jerry? Well, if it's not getting too deep into the weeds, but if the agent hasn't aged yet, we're early on, early on, yeah, early, early. <laughs> so it will help by removing uh, the organophosphate from acetylcholine esterase, which is the enzyme that's going to break down that acetylcholine. So once you're able to regenerate the acetylcholine esterase, it makes it functional again by removing that organophosphate and it become the organophosphate becoming bound to 2-PAM, you'll be able to break down that acetylcholine again. Lessens your cholinergic toxicity. And so. that will help those symptoms resolve. So Absolutely. let's, and, and again, I think closing out with cholinergics, don't forget the seizure risk here. So when we're dosing our atropine and we're redosing our atropine, make sure that we've got our, our uh, benzodiazepine of choice ready as well. 
uh, as these patients can seize pretty quickly. And we'll close out with probably the scariest one of the bunch, to be honest, for me, and that's the cardiotoxins, just because these patients can get deathly ill uh, and be resistant to uh, most normal ranges of treatment. And the main two drugs we see in the cardiotoxin toxicity overdose situation is going to be our beta blockers and our calcium channel blockers, really just because they're the most common and they're the most deadly. Digitalis is always lumped in there, I think, but not as commonly used anymore. So if we focus on the beta blockers and the calcium channel blockers, I, I think that'll serve us pretty well. We know what these drugs are used for, right? They're used for antihypertensives. So the side effects in the toxidrome is pretty easy to sort of tease out. They're going to be hypotensive and they're going to be bradycardic, oftentimes with altermentation as well. So if you have a classic test question, and I always get sort of uh, the duh answer when I ask this, but how do you tell the difference between calcium channel blocker and a beta blocker overdose? And some very intelligent, sarcastic medic says you look at the bottle that's laying beside them, which is the obvious correct answer. <laughs> but assuming that they've got mixed bottles or assuming the bottles are unlabeled or you don't know, how do you, uh, how do you teach your folks to to tell the difference, Jerry? Well, we typically look at um, the glucose. So when you have calcium channel blockade, especially in overdose, you lose some of that specificity. So insulin is also dependent on calcium um, to be released. So when you, you actually block those same calcium channels that are responsible for insulin release. So when you have very significant calcium channel blockade, you actually block the release of insulin, which will actually lead to hyperglycemia. So what's classically taught is, is that a significantly poisoned calcium channel blocker will have hyperglycemia. And I'm talking about, you can see very significant hyperglycemia, glycemia, you know, hyperglycemia into the three, 400 range in a non-diabetic is, it's, it's totally not uncommon in, in a really sick patients. And then with the beta blockers, you can actually see hypoglycemia that is classically more so in children. Um, but to kind of, you know, give the yin and yang of the two, you know, if I was writing a test question, I would make the patient bradycardic hypotensive. If they were hypoglycemic or normal, I would go down more the beta blocker route. If the patient was bradycardic, hypotensive, and hyperglycemic, I would be looking kind of down the, the calcium channel way. And when we treat these folks, obviously fluids, when they're hypotensive, is going to, you know, IV access is going to be our starting point. Oftentimes, vasopressors are going to be needed, you know, depending on what you carry out there. Here at MCHD, we have norepinephrine. And both of these classes can need large, large amounts of vasopressor. Uh, in the calcium channel blocker overdose situation, we want to replace the calcium the best we can. It oftentimes, it's going to require more than just a single, you know, a single amp of calcium chloride. It's going to require more than that, often large doses. Tell us a little bit about, I know the listeners out there probably have seen glucagon on tests, and I'm not telling you that glucagon is necessarily wrong on your test question, but it is a bit dated. Tell us the, the swing from glucagon to some of the newer therapies for calcium channel blocker, beta blocker overdoses here. Yeah, I mean, we still, I mean, obviously, and we're caring for these patients at the bedside in the hospital. This is another situation where things are going in parallel. It's not like I'm starting one thing, especially, you know, if somebody comes in with a heart rate of 30 with a blood pressure of 70. I'm not like, well, let's give them a liter and see how they do. Like I'm hanging fluids. I'm getting the pressures ready to go. I may try a dose of atropine while I'm giving them calcium and then considering even doing, you know, um, high dose insulin therapy. So these are things that are happening 
especially the critically ill patient all at one time. Now, we still do with our beta blockers administer glucagon and see if we get a response or not. If, you know, if we give a patient three to five milligrams of glucagon and it seems to help, then we will, you know, we'll put them on an infusion. But I would say that, you know, our, our go-to is fluids, pressors, um, calcium, trisomatropine, but we will give glucagon a try. In Phoenix, we haven't been as aggressive adopting um, high-dose insulin as other centers have, but some people go to that very, very early. But in the critical patient, they're going to be getting a number of these different therapies. But the high-dose insulin <laughs> is, um, I mean, it's high-dose. You're, you're talking, uh, you know, a unit per kilo to start. So, you know, 70 kilo person, you're starting them at 70 units an hour, and there are clearly centers that go to 10 units a kilo. So there will be people on infusions of 700 units an hour even um, to treat their severe toxicity, which is, that's a lot of insulin. We have seen a couple cases of this in our system over the past couple of years, and we had one of, one of these receive high-dose insulin at the receiving hospital. I was interested and followed the case, and the initial dose was 100 units of insulin with a drip at 100 units per hour. Just for reference out there, uh, Jerry said a unit per kilogram is often the starting point, and the starting point for DKA is 0.1 units 0.1. per kilogram yeah. for the listeners. So that's a you know a magnitude order of magnitude difference. So these are huge high dose insulin drips and insulin boluses. So it's uh, I don't know like, like you said I don't know that it's a hundred percent the accepted standard of care, but it's definitely moving moving in that direction. And that's that's a good spot for us to wrap up with some 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 tidbits and take home points. You know, always be aware of exposure in workplace and multiple patient settings. You know, we we know that the the fentanyl scare is a lot of hysteria and a lot of hyperbole. And if we wear gloves and we use common sense, that people aren't aren't dying of uh, transdermal. Uh, fentanyl exposures out there. There's no documented cases of this. But if you walk into an enclosed space and you notice three people down, from a talk standpoint, it's probably a good idea to think of things like carbon monoxide, like hydrogen sulfide, like organophosphates and other things that could be involved. So we want to you know, be, be aware of our surroundings. Protect yourself first. And again, in fentanyl's case, it only requires gloves. If anybody out there is using charcoal in their EMS systems, make sure the patient's alert. You know, charcoal charcoal is is great. It's not great for aspiration. Yeah, hard uh, on the lungs. Yeah. <laughs> and then taking us home, talked about antidotes throughout throughout the podcast. Don't forget your airway and breathing. You know, antidote is is on that list, but the A is airway, not antidote. Stop stop seizures. Any, any ingestion, unknown ingestion patient. A lot of these a lot of these drugs on these lists are lower your seizure threshold. So have your, have your benzo of choice ready. Look at the skin, put a glove on before you stick your hand in somebody's armpit, but take a look at the skin, take a look at the pupils. Those are often key points in an organophosphate, cholinergic toxicity. There's no such thing as too much atropine. We want to reverse the killer bees. As always, Jerry, thanks for joining us. If you have questions or comments for the podcast, send them to us at podcast at mchd-tx.org and be sure to leave us a review. The more positive we get, the more visible we get. And as always, we'll talk to you soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.